for turning up. And it's I'm, I'm Christopher, Chris. in case you hadn't seen pictures of us before. Um, so, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to be here to talk about um, uh, Chris's new book, which I just finished rereading, and um, it's it's insanely great. It's it's I, I I just confirmed that he knows it's his best book, and one that I'm terrifically excited for you guys to get a chance to read. And it um, is a book that uh, is is possible to um, to spoil with spoilers. So I'm going to have to do some dodgy, you know, paraphrase or or or, or get, just get vague and abstract. And Silverblatt just took care of that today. So oh, there, did he? There, there he, are no he, spoilers. There are no, left. Yeah, he, he exposed all your secrets. Um, but it's um, it it it's a a book full of uh, you know, just like the exciting blurbs suggest, uh, intrigue and and. And sex and um, and and danger. There is an open grave at the end into which certain characters tumble. Um, but it also, of course, um, is uh, characteristically um, a extraordinary uh, journey into into voice and several different voices. Um, you know, uh, I think my favorite character that that uh, Chris has ever written is uh, this this woman, Kat Danhoff, um, who um, is an, uh, a kind of a, uh, I don't know what to call her. She's an investigative journalist, wannabe. She's a work, working journalist, but she doesn't really get very many assignments she's, that rise above the, the level of... She's got the garden party beat, Yeah, basically. she gets to go and, and cover... Um, the the state fair and things like that, um, but she's 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 fine. It makes it really does make it sound like a like a nineteen thirties movie. She's finally got her her teeth into a big case. <laughs> um, it's it's and, front page. Yeah, this is something that might hit the front page. And then there is a um, a, a tormented mid career uh, famous loser novelist um, who uh, named named Sandy Mulligan. Who, um, who is also uh, an extraordinary voice and very, very funny, uh, uh, self-infatuated and self-loathing type. And you know, uh, if you know if you know Sorrentino's work, you know that uh, you can expect these extraordinary sentences and the extra- extraordinary passages of uh, you know uh, extended uh, mental fugue, philosophical, emotional uh, passages of, of um, uh, coruscating, ranting, uh, brilliant language. But what's you know so um, different in some ways in this book is that uh, you you know you wrote a plot, you wrote a story. So one of the things I want to um, talk about with with Chris is uh, what it was like to um, you know it's kind of like. Cat Danhoff gets her teeth into a case. You got your teeth into a, a story, <laughs> in a very different way. And it bit back. Yeah, right. Um, so, there's this passage on page 26. I asked Chris if he wouldn't mind if I read a little tiny bit of the book uh, out loud. So I'm going to read this to set the table. Um, think of the story as a basic unit. Stand at the counter in the kitchen in the morning, shoveling in yogurt and bran. The old, the old story of trying to live forever. Why do you eat bran? Well, I want to live. That's one story. Or you say, dropping the spoon into the bowl to finger your jawline, I cut myself shaving. And the missus says, with, I'll grant you, an extraordinary level of awareness. Wasn't that a new blade? 
And the story wends its way through all the satisfying twists and false conclusions, the way it used to be, how I learned to shave, the corporate misfeasance of Gillette, ending zen-like on the decision to grow a beard. That is ha- this is how everyone lives. The traffic and lines, the rude clerks and precocious children, the price hikes and small happy surprises. Times without number, continuous. And one day we look down to see our hands doing whatever it is they happen to be doing, chopping vegetables, typing, jerking off. This child. And we finally recognize the truncation in that perpetual view, the necessity of a mind's eye in order to see, see all of ourselves at all. We realize that we have been stuck staring at those hands for as long as our lives, ourselves accruing and forming from the imperceptible blending of each moment into the indistinguishable modules of a whole, the unending stream narrated entirely by a hero without a face. Those hands, the only unvarying things, from delivery room to deathbed, to mark the fact that what we witness is ours and not someone else's. How can we live if we don't make discrete chunks of that continuum? This basic unit, the proffered parcel of our days and nights alone, anecdote and memory, association and reminiscence, conjecture, desire and regret, the bones of the lunchtime saga over a glass of wine. So, coming out of that, my question is more than just uh, how did you find yourself uh, writing a story after all these other kinds of uh, ways of, of driving a book, but is it age? Is it is it is it uh, getting older that made you uh, stare narrative in the face this way for the first time? Is it about is it about your life? But you know that we is it about the the you know I came to a journey. I came to a you know whatever a dark woods. A dark woods. Yeah. Uh, I, why story now? Well, it's, I either came to a dark woods or I came to senility, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know if there's any particular life change that engendered the idea of confronting um, story. I think I was more interested in the ways that authors in particular, since an author is at the center of this novel, um, Turn everything into a story and begin to begin to narrate almost uh, almost despite themselves. Particularly when uh, the, the truth, unvarnished and awkward as it may be, might be a better course. And that's what Sandy, who's the novelist uh, at the center of the book, tends to do: is to avoid the truth when it's more felicitous for him to turn it into a kind of story. And I don't know if it was that I'd arrived at some point in my life where that was something I recognized in myself or if that was just something I had always recognized about myself as a novelist because it seemed to have informed the decision to become one to begin with. <laughs> much, much easier to take control of your stories and set them down in a way that they can't actually be altered or rebutted than to uh, than to deal with the truth and continually have to to get closer to the things that are that are more uncomfortable to you and maybe to the other people to whom you're telling it take cover um, <laughs> anyway yes that's the answer yeah so um, so one of the uh, you know the 
primary actions in this story, or that's, that that sets up this story, is flight. It's it's a story about you know um, absconding, departing, running away, uh, getting out. Uh, you know, and it becomes a a city and country story. Uh, Sandy is in in New York, uh, in the heart of the action publishing industry, and. Uh, the place where people feel they're at the center of everything, and uh, runs away to the woods, but but not quite. <laughs> uh, runs away to a kind of a, a margin where he can see the woods, um, and um, you know, I mean, the title the title sets the motif that there's a number of different levels at which uh, these different characters are fugitives or on the lam from 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 things. Um, but you're still in the in the action. You're still in New York. Me, me. Yeah. The author. You, you, the author. Uh, well, I've never had much success running away from anything. I mean, uh, uh, any time I've tried to get away from New York uh, has always been a bit of a disaster. Maybe I just haven't found the right place to to get to yet. And certainly, the idea of leaving New York simply to write a book or to complete a project has never quite worked out either. These people um, and their various fugitive endeavors are, I think of them more as um, very typically American and very typically American in this day and age where not only is there carried forward that idea that's existed for the last hundred years or so of just, or more, of just picking up and leaving the place that you'd come from and the origins that you'd come from and finding a new identity that no one could really question, but also the the various ways we have now of disguising ourselves, lying about ourselves, um, manipulating the way that we're perceived both online and and otherwise, and that seemed to me to be the the thing that had begun to to interest me in writing the book because I hadn't really written a book about the present day before. You know, my my other two books, one takes place in the early 80s, and I wrote it in the early 90s, and that seemed like ages ago at the time. And the other, which Trance, which was published about 10 years ago, takes place in the mid 1970s, and was in effect a historical novel and I realized when I sat down to write this book um, that to treat the way we thought about ourselves nowadays um, and the means electronic and otherwise that we had to enable um, the the realization of our vision of ourselves hadn't really hadn't really existed even when I was writing those other books and hadn't been treated by by me yet and that was that's part of the kind of story that these people are telling. Sandy's the primary storyteller he's the one who earns his living doing it but everyone in the book uh, not only is is telling a story about themselves or about what they want people to believe, but they're they're pushing it hard in, in a sense. They're they're kind of relying on it to protect themselves from consequences or ghosts that might otherwise come and uh, come and catch them. So, all right, there's a lot of stuff in there that I, I'd love to. To talk about, I should say by the way, you guys can help me with some of the follow-up. I'm definitely going to turn this open and and try to you know help 
um, sell books. Help sell books, but help uh, help help um, find find other questions besides my own for for Chris. So think you know you can be thinking of them now. But so I want to follow up on the East and West stuff and talk about being from New York and coming to California and then going back to New York. But let's follow up on the um, like the that twenty uh, first century modernity, the the internet as a, a place where you go to be hidden and found, disclosed and, and disguised at the same time, and the problems that creates for um, for identity construction and storytelling both. I mean, one of the things that I that I was really struck by was, you know, the the typical way in which the you know the, Sandy is a novelist and he's very typical of our caste or our clan, right, in being um, perturbed by uh, the the internet in certain ways. But he's the the book doesn't formulate the problem for the novel that the internet poses as being one of like a uh, the attention span. The typical you know oh people's attention is too distributed or too thinned out or too partitioned uh, they'll never be able to sustain uh, their focus long enough to read a book. There are jokes about the fact that nobody reads books, but the more the more striking uh, critique is that there's something about um, the construction of um, the internet that turns everything into uh, a kind of a product version of itself, like a uh, there, there, instead of there being um, identity or language or a book, there's there's only this sort of um, sales vehicle, and and the self and the book are equally uh, subject to the same kind of erosion in that in that atmosphere. Yeah, that's it exactly. I never really think of the internet as being something that you know kills brain cells or makes it more difficult for people to focus on things. In fact, I think the focus that the internet uh, encourages is is one of almost total absorption, and it's sometimes not to the detriment of the person who's totally absorbed, but oftentimes it is. And as Jonathan has just suggested, uh, the thing that began to interest me about it as I looked into it vis-a-vis the way that it's referred to in the book is exactly the fact that what a lot of people, I won't say everybody, but what, what a lot of people have discovered in the internet is a way of presenting themselves or their interests or the things that they're doing as a, as a kind of sales and marketing device. And by extension, they themselves become a kind of branded product that can therefore be uh, sold and marketed. And like most branded products, uh, there has to be a kind of image that attaches to that product that can't have too much nuance and can't have too much of a downside. And so you, you, you often see people's self-presentation on the internet as being one of almost entirely uh, self-congratulatory expressions. And um, and this happens to have coincided, this technological development happens to have coincided or perhaps is a natural outgrowth of this present day idea that every single person is really a kind of creative entrepreneur. We're no longer employees, we're no longer citizens, 
we're no longer uh, enthusiasts, we're no longer connoisseurs. What we are are um, uh, providers of a certain product, whether that product is internet content or artisanal pickles or whatever it is that we, we happen to be doing. And this, this encouragement has been taken up, it seems to me, by a lot of people. I'm not going to brand a, partic a particular generation with, with this particular attribute, but I would say that a lot of people, many of them younger, but some not so young, have, have taken up the challenge of becoming entrepreneurs, of capitalizing upon themselves and their interests and their abilities to do this, that, or the other thing, without in any way really uh, thinking critically about what they're doing, and without in any way thinking critically about the ways in which their own true identities, such as they are, have been attenuated by this practice of devoting themselves to posting 96 tweets over the course of a day, or devoting themselves to a blog on vintage comic book covers of Venezuela from the 1970s, or whatever particularly, particularly esoteric thing they happen to be interested in. Great. Well, so um, I'm going to uh, read another um, another little bit that's um, maybe extends the the conversation about um, the, the contemporary atmosphere that that, that uh, fiction writing, novel writing, storytelling uh, is trying to contend with here. So this is um, Sandy's agent telling him basically to you know uh, finish his book. He hasn't really even begun his book, but to write a book, to send something in because uh, it's 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 the due date, and he's going to get himself in trouble with his publisher, and and he says, uh, you know, Sandy's protesting. There's no book, which I, I think his agent at this moment in the in the in story is hearing as uh, it's not ready, it's not good enough. I haven't finished it, and um, and and he actually means there's no book. <laughs> he's not going to he's not going to tip that. The hand, agent's right reaction is. Send them what you have and let Monty and his elves hammer it into shape like the shoemaker in that fairy tale. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the kind of okay. <laughs> Writers fall for that crap all the time. Don't fall for it. He's falling for it. He's got this labyrinth he forces himself to spend years working his way through with this total enigma at the center. So of course he's thinking of it as an enduringly profound artifact that he's creating. It's just a fucking story, Sandy. That's what you writers always forget. Look, five million years ago, some poor schmuck of a hominid was wending his way across the savanna when a lion jumps him and drags him off into the bushes. For millennia, he's just a skull and a pile of bones buried beneath the mud until an anthropologist digs him up, dusts him off, and ships him to the British Museum. The guy never did anything except scratch himself, throw rocks, and eat grubs. But now he entertains, informs, and enlightens millions. How are you going to top that? Maybe in a couple hundred years there'll be a few dozen doctoral dissertations on your work that's no, that no one's looked at in decades. Movies, Sandy, the closest you'll ever come to leaving your jawbone preserved in the mud somewhere in Africa, will be the movies made from your books. They won't even be remembering your work. They'll be remembering fucking Ethan Hawke. <laughs> I, I should point out that Ethan Hawke is sort of a running joke in the book. He starred in a movie made from one of Sandy's books. Uh, I think what I was getting at in that passage, um, especially as compared with the first passage that you read about the story simply being the way that we 
uh, arrange the narrative of our lives for the for the sake of the people who share our lives or the people who intersect with our lives. Uh, I was in that particular passage that Jonathan just read, kind of addressing the general uh, how to put it um, the prevailing attitude that I find often in publishing nowadays and by extension in the literary world generally uh, that would be the New York literary world uh, is that the the perfect should should not be the enemy of the kind of okay that the kind of okay can always fly that what we're really doing is we're putting out something with a shiny cover and uh, some really good quotes from some recognizable names and we're going to you know through whatever obscure system of quid pro quo that exists we're going to obtain coverage in uh, in the big newspapers and the magazines and on public radio and so on and so forth and that the book as the impetus for all of this frenzied activity starts to become almost um, secondary. It's almost a kind of uh, byproduct of this uh, machinery of commerce that's that's rolling. And what what Jonathan hasn't really gotten into, he's just alluded to it by giving my character the agent's take on Sandy's creative dilemma, uh, is uh, the general attitude I take toward publishing in the book, which is sort of scabrous, although I have to say, you know, for the sake of anybody who's involved in publishing that happens to be sitting in the room, obviously it's exaggerated for the purposes of satire, but not not too much. There's nothing in there that I would not say is, there's nothing in there that I would, I would say is untrue, and I would go slightly farther with that and kind of hearken back at this moment to what I had just said about the idea of the creative entrepreneur because it's not merely uh, the people involved in the publishing industry and the people involved in the book reviewing apparatus who are who are complicit in this it's also um, a lot of readers who uh, 20, 25 years ago would have been more or less passive enthusiasts for the books that they were reading they would have read them, they would have talked about them amongst their friends um, but now they are in a situation where they can become players in this scene. They, their creative entrepreneurship involves uh, this instantaneous publication of their of their ideas and their thoughts about books. Often, uh, their their insider knowledge about certain things that take place in the book industry. And what's strange about that, from my perspective, and probably from your perspective too, Jonathan, is. I remember when the internet first began to talk about books uh, more or less regularly, and maybe that was, what, 15 years ago? Um, and my first thought at that time was, oh, that's terrific. There are all these books out there and all these authors out there who really deserve a second look. And the big publishing is publishing their usual five or six titles per season that everyone is expected to pay attention to and that you see on the front page of the Times or that you see in, I don't know, Time magazine or whatever happens to be the current bellwether of like literary significance. And the internet is going to be c correcting for that because there will be all sorts of bloggers 
um, one of whom, a former, a former one is sitting right in front of me, who will indeed talk about the books that are of interest to them, whether or not anybody else is interested in them. And that former blogger indeed did do that to, to the extent that he was was able to in his blog. Um, and we'll say no more about it, Mark. I'm sorry, but <laughs> but a reform blog. That's a lapsed. I prefer lapsed, but. Instead, what ended up happening, I think, was there was this uh, there was this process by which I think a lot of the bloggers who may otherwise have been writing about those interesting books that nobody else was paying any attention to in the so-called mainstream media realized that the conversation was leaving them behind. They realized that in order to be truly au courant, in order to really have their have their blog entries. Uh, posted on Facebook or retweeted or whatever the means is of proliferating that kind of stuff, they were going to have to write about the exact same books as well. So instead of someone writing about, uh, I don't know, Paul Metcalf and his collected works, they would write about the new Franzen or they would write about the new Eugenides. And there's nothing wrong about writing about those things except, you know, you can't do it without being cognizant of the fact that you are joining in uh, a conversation that tends to be very limiting and exclusive. And instead of having uh, this wide-ranging discussion of books and authors and any other cultural effusions that might happen to come down the pike, you had this very hugely concentrated conversation about five or six names, none of which really needed your contribution in order to gain the foothold in the world that they were that they had been designed to get, but which you needed in order to gain the foothold. So in a sense, you, you're complicit in this exact same process of focusing and concentrating all the energy on Garth Hallberg's City on Fire, uh, for example. Now, I don't I don't know anything about that book. I know Garth a little bit, and he seems like a nice guy. But I also know that when you get paid $2 million for a book, and everybody and his brother who publishes a magazine or publishes a newspaper who broadcasts on public radio or on the morning shows is covering the book, you really don't need Joe Schlobotnik, the blogger who's working out of Topeka, Kansas, to kind of pipe up with his two cents, too. But They'll take it. You know, Knopf is not going to say, Joe Schlobotnik, don't, don't blog about Garth Hallberg. Why don't you blog about, uh, you, you know, Maggie Nelson? And, and Joe blogs about it. So there is, that, there is that kind of critical mass that tends to have focused around these titles and tends to have focused around these titles because these people have embrace the idea of themselves as literary personalities and the reason why they've embraced themselves that way is because they've adopted this kind of identity and what's enabled them to adopt the identity is the technology and working in concert with this uh, sort of tendency of the publishing industry to focus all of its attention on very few of its products. And I think I managed to back out of that answer enough to get to the original premise Jonathan had posited. So uh, um, I want you guys to start thinking of things. I know that there's some probably some uh, terrific questions for, for Chris lurking out there. And um, I, I, what I'm going to do right now is uh, shift gears a little bit from the insides of this book, which, you know, you guys all I hope are destined to to encounter and 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 
and be fascinated by and talk about your trajectory, how you ended up uh, uh, with this as your fourth novel in this year. You know, and, and it's also the time to say, Chris and I have an unusual amount of personal history. Um, we, we, uh, we were at high school together. We were at high school. And uh, back before um, he knew or I knew uh, necessarily that one another would um, get into this racket um, nece- before necessarily I was even sure I would get into this racket. But um, I think you were more sure than I was. I had back some. Then. I had some 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 ideas, but I was hiding them behind my uh, official identity as a uh, painting student, because w- uh, uh, an art student, because we were at music and art high school, um, along with our friend Neil, who's, who's here w- witnessing this. And um, you know, I mean, the first I knew of 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 Chris, I remember a self-portrait you painted hanging on the wall outside Mrs. Sunshine's <laughs> room. Mrs. Sunshine. Um, and um, that was her she, real... She uh, so wasn't. It was a misnomer. <laughs> it really, that was her real name. Um, we actually had a really a really great um, array of... There was like um, a, a Mr. Fox and a Mrs. Katz. Yes. Miss, Mrs. Sunshine. And I feel like there was one other... Uh, uh. Except, you know, like out of a kind of children's storybook um, teacher name, but it's um, one right, is, Wolf, right, of course, science. There's Wolf, Wolf, Fox, and Cats. Um, <laughs> so, um, so we went to school. This is 1970s. We, we, you know, both were taking the subway up to Harlem to 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 um, to music and art. Except then, Chris spun out and you were a year ahead of I ahead of me ahead of you. and he he went uh, you tell me you correct me if i get this wrong he went to something called city as school which was this marvelous kind of sleight of hand where you got to just 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 uh define you new york got, city as your 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 schoolhouse and you, you got a high school diploma for doing unpaid labor is basically <laughs> what it was yeah. it was it was a precursor of the uh, of the uh, intern the intern culture. industry and right. so the the idea yeah. was to try and get as many internships as you could that required you to take the subway because what they would do is give you a bunch of subway tokens. And then after you had the subway tokens in hand, you dropped the resources. That's what they called the jobs you were to go to and kept all the ones that you could walk to. And then you cashed in your subway tokens and you had money to buy beer with. <laughs> it's great. So I mastered that. I got a diploma in drinking beer, basically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, drinking beer was pretty much the next place I, I spotted you, <laughs> at, you know, at various For punk, years. punk clubs where you were either in the band or, or in the audience or had just been kicked out of the band or were just about to insert yourself into the band. Or to get kicked out of the club. Yeah, or get kicked out of the club. And, um, but our, our, our connection was sporadic until we relocated each other in San Francisco because we both... Uh, I mean, you talked about your unsuccessful attempts to run away from New York City, but we both did pretty good time in our 20s in, in the Bay Area. And in fact, that's where we both were self-inventing as writers and, and uh, pub- published our first fiction while, while living there. Is that right? I mean, we did, the Archive did Sound on Sound, Chris's first novel. Uh, I my book came out I think about six months after Gun with Occasional Music, yeah. which and it was at a reading for Gun that you and I reconnected. That was re- reconnected. Chris spotted my name in a. I was reading at some tiny little club in the Mission. In, in, yeah, it was called the, the Valencia Poetry <laughs> Club or something. That might be right. You know, um, and you and Alexander, yeah, Alexander Lawrence, Lawrence set, that, set up. that up. So 
Now, I, you know, apart from all the obvious forms of kinship or the kinds I haven't revealed to you, like our long-suffering Mets fandom and so forth, the thing that I really want to get at that's worth talking about, I think, is the east-west tension. Because you, So you were in San Francisco writing Sound on Sound, which was about the high school punk club scene uh, of, of New York in the you know, in the late 80s, right? Early, early 80s. Early 80s, really. Things, things yeah. were already over Mid-80s, by yeah. then, yeah. Uh, and, um, and I, you know, I took a while, actually, to, to figure out to write about New York City. I wrote, I wrote, I was living in Berkeley and Oakland and working in bookstores and gone with occasional music, and the next couple of books were, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, disclose my, my, my New York uh, childhood or connection at all. I just wrote about things in the West for a while. But you did the double reverse. You moved back to New York. We, we both moved back to Brooklyn at, uh, at a similar point. You, 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 I think you were about a six, eight months behind. Right. Me. At which point I began writing about New York City and you spent 15 years writing a novel about San Francisco. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't quite 15 years, but yes, I did, I did write trance. about the West Coast. Um, trance, the you know, store. your, your um, SLA... Uh, novel. So um, now, you know, so here we have have you, there's the consuming LA loathing and curiosity about the life of New York City, the arrogance, the, the solipsism. Uh, but so you're visiting uh, here, you know, I mean, um, do you, do you, uh, what did, what did, what did your California time do to your sensibility? What did, what did it do to uh you know the the writer who would who would end up writing fugitives about a, a New York writer dreaming of escape. Well, that's a really interesting question because I was actually thinking about it this morning. I haven't been in California in a few years, and so it always uh, stirs up a lot of really acute memories for me because I did live here for a long time, and it left quite an impression on me. And I sometimes feel that in having grown up in New York, moved to California, and then moved back to New York, that what I managed to do is completely efface whatever impression California left on me. But all I have to do is, um, well, not exactly get off the plane at LAX or SFO, but get into the towns to realize, like, oh, no, nothing's gone. I remember all of this. I remember the the smell of the wind, the temperature of the wind, the the way people drive, whatever. But to answer your question, um, what's interesting about my experience in California is that in a sense, a very remote sense, I wouldn't say that there's a direct causal relationship between the two, moving out to California was the very first time that I realized that it was possible to say, I don't have to be that person that I was. Um, I moved out here when I think I was 20, and to have left behind all of my middling failures as a teenager, um, all of my embarrassments, all of those, uh, all of those parts of my life that I didn't necessarily want to have trailing along behind me, the way they were with the old friends with whom I associated in New York and with whom I still associate in New York um, from time to time um, was a revelation. Nobody could know. Uh, Certainly back then in 1983 or whatever it was, uh, there was no 
internet to speak of, to leave a trail. Uh, there was no way for anybody to double check. There was no, there was no way for anybody to know anything about me except what it was that I chose to tell them. And I took full advantage of that. Really, I didn't spin incredibly wild tales about myself. I just omitted things. These were lies of omission and uh, selection that I took full advantage of for a long, long time until, of course, I'd built up enough of a history in San Francisco and the Bay Area to say, well, it's time to go back to New York and start lying again. But but really, that was it was kind of an eye-opener, and it wasn't even that conscious. It wasn't like I set out to be Jay Gatsby and just reinvent myself entirely for a specific purpose. It just seemed to be uh, a kind of slope that gravity allowed me to roll down very, very easily. And so when writing this book, uh, that's probably the primary um, emphasis that the book places. The reason why it's called The Fugitives and not The Fugitive uh, is because everybody in this book has made the exact same discovery about what they can do with their lives and what it is that they can efface and eliminate and avoid. And the storytelling aspect of it, because the book might as well be called Storytellers, and I briefly considered it, um, but I think there is a novel called Storytellers, so I decided not to. Uh, They're all making this new reality for themselves out of these stories that they tell and the ways that they shape them. Uh, One thing about writers that writers understand, I think, more consciously than other people is that what makes a story, that story about eating bran or talking about cutting yourself shaving, is the fact that you, you often leave out the parts that are boring or inconvenient. And everybody who tells a story knows that instinctively. Writers just grab hold of that instinct and make it part of their practice. So that that's really the influence Great. that the West Coast had on me and my, my novel writing, especially vis-a-vis this novel, but possibly all of them. I mean, the novel that Patricia Hearst is, to a certain extent, about people who decided to change who they were. It's about a lot of people who were mostly middle-class, nice kids who were on the pep squad, who ended up arming themselves with automatic weapons and running around California, fantasizing about overthrowing the U.S. government. And and their, their most famous convert, of course, was the fabulously wealthy... Um, agent of the upper class, the 1%, as we'd say today, Patricia Campbell Hurst. And even my first novel, Sound on Sound, is about people who, you know, they grow up in the West Village or Soho or uh, the Upper West Side, and their their, uh, idea of themselves is to change their names to, like, you know, Jackie Shithead or whatever happened to be, you know, O'Kurant in the day and dress in outlandish costumes and and go and play music. And then we flash forward in that book to a point at which they've managed to get rid of that part of their lives and become something else. So you might say that these questions of identity and its fluidity have always been really, really interesting to me in all of my work. And this is maybe the this is maybe the book where I'm going to have to turn to something else to be interested in because I think yeah. I said everything I needed to say about it. Well, and it is like a traditional function of the uh, Easterners' mythos of the westward journey is self-invention, 
self-perfection or self-erasure, right? You come here to clean the slate. Right, but then, of course, when you get here, as Nathaniel West pointed <laughs> out, you get mad because not only you, you thought you'd fool them all by coming out here and being someone else, but it turned out that the place you came to fooled you. And I'm not speaking specifically of Los Angeles. I know a lot of people are still mad at Nathaniel West for his take on Los Angeles, but I, I, I look at that uh, as more allegorical than as literal-minded. I think that West is cautioning us about those kinds of easy solutions generally. Great. So let me try to pull other voices in here. Um, I'm hoping you've got questions. Neil? Hey. Hey guys, thanks so much. It's wonderful to hear you both talking. Um, Chris, I love the book. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was, it was your best book. Thank you, Neil. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I like that you wrote a pot boiler. It's got murder, it's got intrigue, it's got action, it's got uh, supernatural revelation. I won't give away too much. But, it's, uh, but no, emphasize the pot. It really is a yeah. great read. <laughs> There's a lot of copies up there, and you can all find out for yourselves. But it's also, um, you know, I mean, it's something growing up with you. I remember being very, very, I should be, just Chris turned me on to literary fiction when I was a kid. His dad was the senior editor at Grove Press for how many years? And so through his influence, I was turned on to tons and tons and tons of writers that changed my life. And, uh, and back then, we, there was kind of a prejudice against storytelling that I sort of absorbed from you. And so it's just nice to see that, you know, you kind of come full circle. And at the same time, it still maintains um, the, uh, the formal concerns uh, and, uh, and linguistic flair. I mean, it's got everything. So I just really loved it. But I wanted to ask you, when you, when you were reading that little section, the second section, there was something about a... Uh, the, the editor talking about an enigma at the heart of the book. And this is something I remember discussing with you about Trance, your, Latin, your previous novel, um, uh, which is that the, as I recall, you told me that Patty Hearst character um, was, I think there was a process of whittling her out of the book. And so what you have there that I think a lot of critics completely missed, and I think that the first New York Times review of this new book also completely missed is this, this idea of a cipher at the heart of the book. In this book, you have this fake American Indian who, by the end of the book, it's dubious whether he even exists. Is the supernatural revelation just a trope to reveal his absurdity or what? I don't know. But uh, I'm just wondering if, you, if you'd look here to talk a little bit about this process because I can't think of any other writers that really a cipher. I mean, this, it's kind of an anti-commercial thing to do. People are reading your book, Trans, hoping to meet Patty Hearst, and she's just not there. And it's the same with this book. There's this character that everyone's interested in, but he's barely there. I'm just curious what you well, I don't, I don't know if I'm the only one doing it. I mean, if you go if you go to like Hammett, for example, and you've got the Maltese Falcon. I mean, in a lot of cases, the the thing that the action is organized around is what Hitchcock would have referred to as a MacGuffin, which takes on this dis, uh, this disproportionate kind of importance in the narrative, but doesn't actually materialize or have any real bearing on why we're all gathered there. Or rather, it's why we're all gathered there, but doesn't have any bearing on what happens after we've gathered there. Hammett even allegorizes this with the Flitcraft episode at the, right. at the center of the, right. the, 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 the cipher at the center of the cipher. 
Exactly. Yeah, I forgot about the Flitcraft episode. Um, but to answer your question less pedantically, um, I I always think it's in the case of trance. I had never had any intention of shedding light on Patricia Hearst. That seemed to me to be the the least interesting thing I could possibly do with the book would be to uh, to identify or to uh, psychoanalyze or otherwise to bring her into uh, focus in a way that we'd finally say at the end of 500 pages, ah, that's why. The whole point of Patricia Hearst as being at the center of that book was for her to be someone um, everybody reading the book and everybody who was involved in the book could kind of project their own ideas upon. And it's sort of the same way with the character of Salto and his um, and his storytelling there. You know, Sandy, the novelist, spends a lot of time talking about Salto. What is it about Salto that's, that he's drawn to? Because, I don't know if Jonathan had mentioned this, but once Sandy gets to the town in Michigan where he decides to woodshed, what he ends up doing rather than writing is hanging out in a library watching Salto tell stories to kids. This is Native American storyteller yeah. who has a, an hour at the library. Very kind of podunk uh, American you know, scene that, that you wouldn't normally right. fixate upon. Well, especially if you were... You know, Mr. Mr. Literary Star, as Sandy seems to be, and Sandy spends a lot of time thinking a lot about why he's drawn to this guy, and what he does in thinking about it is he he will propose various reasons why this guy is so particularly uh, inviting or attractive to him, and then kind of respond to them, and say, "Well, no, it's it's not that." And one thing that you notice if you read the book is that over over the course of the novel, he's never really quite able to identify what it is about Salto that draws him in. But then you have Kat, the other narrator, the reporter, and she has an entirely different idea about why she's interested in Salto. And that idea is that she believes he's an imposter who's involved in a, in a theft. And so her idea is very concrete. She's able to answer it in a very concrete way. And yet again, it turns out that her uh, her um, uh, assumption is entirely wrong, and so this seems to me uh, generally as a kind of technique or as a kind of approach to a novel uh, of being a way to organize the activity of a lot of people, a lot of characters who might otherwise have no reason to come into contact with each other around an idea that they are all obsessed with for reasons that are entirely self-serving. You know, it's not the same thing as writing a novel about, I don't know, the Crusades, where everyone's like, <laughs> yeah, let's go spread Christianity throughout North Africa or whatever it might be. This is, this is an idea about here's an object or a person or an idea that's, that holds a lot of desire for me individually, and I don't really care how it affects the other people, because I'm going to take advantage of that idea. It really is a Maltese Falcon uh, organization. It, yeah. it, it is, and I never, I actually, this is the first time I had yeah. actually thought of it in terms of Hammett and the Maltese Falcon, and yet 
Hammond and the Maltese Falcon is the is the perfect analogy for what I'm doing. Right. Well, and all, but it's also the golden bowl. It's you know <laughs> the container, the empty vessel that into which you know desire pours, right from from every direction. And it's all about desire. I mean, that's that's another thing that I think a lot of people haven't quite gotten about this book is that it's you know, the reason why these people are changing themselves, the reason why these people are running from whatever they're running from, the reason why these people are running toward whatever they're running toward is because of, of desire. They're all remarkably unfulfilled. And in that sense, the book is, to me, in addition to being funny or, uh, you know, perspicacious or whatever it happens to be. It also is a really sad book because these people are, are desperate. They're they're really desperate characters and they all they all want something that they think is just within their reach. But not only is it not within their reach, but in pursuing it, they're about to screw up whatever equilibrium it is that they've managed to attain. And by the end of the book, I can say without giving too much away, they they pretty much do upset their equilibrium. So, more questions uh, for Chris? A couple more, anyway, before we make him sign books? You guys are bringing sort of an interesting place to both comment about inheritance or genetics, knowing what you guys, you know, like, saw in the book, you know, patrimony in that, in that sort of sense, uh, and also sort of like racial or ethnic minority more in a certain way. Um, I know you wrote a book about sports. I'm like thinking about the stuff with Steph Curry these days. Like, Say that again. Uh huh. Like, you know, oh, he's a son of, right? But, but the son of, and like, yeah. the one thing you can't see, no matter how much you are, is like, yeah, I mean it's it's striking. I mean, um, Neil made mention of of uh, Chris's dad, who was a, a great American writer and and uh, also a you know a, a a guy who didn't get his due. And my father, who's still alive, is an unfamous American painter. There's just no other way to put it. Um, but what... And, and they didn't know one another. But what uh, unifies our relation, I think, in a really particular way, is that they come from an, a, a, an era of American, you know, uh, artistic practice. And, and in a way... Um, cultural practice, the way a painter or a writer and an a editor for Grove lived and occupied space, cultural space in New York City and the city that that was theirs in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s when we come of age and it's begun to curdle and disappear and, you know, um, both Chris and I grew up in a city that was... Uh, a magnificent, disappointed place, <laughs> you know? And possible. Yeah. And there was possibility there. Uh, I mean, I think the thing that binds Jonathan's dad, Richard, and my dad, Gilbert, is the fact that the fact that Jonathan's dad was an unfamous painter and is an unfamous fa- painter, and the fact that my father was an unfamous writer, uh, wasn't of paramount 
importance in a way that I don't think either Jonathan or I can say can say we share. Uh, for my father, and I can't speak for Richard, um, my father began as a poet back in the 1950s, and his expectations as a poet were were very low. You know what he what he wanted was to publish poems that weren't like the poems that were appearing in the New Yorker, that weren't like were appearing in the bigger journals like poetry. And his way of going about that would be what we nowadays call DIY. And so he published in magazines that were put together by like-minded poets, and he had his own magazine in which he published like-minded poets. And when he switched and became interested in writing prose, it was his same attitude that, that took hold. And his first few books were published by trade publishers who took a chance on him and didn't sell. And then he managed to have something of a splash that kind of gave his career a sort of false buoyance. But I think through all of that, whether he was up or down, my father was writing what he wanted to write. And I'm pretty sure that's what what Richard's painting, too. And the provenance that both Jonathan and I, I think, managed to obtain from our fathers is that while I th- I'm happy to cop to the fact that being a significant writer in terms of whatever that happens to mean nowadays is more important to me than it was to my father, and I think Jonathan would say the same thing. I think if tomorrow we woke up and our names had been stricken from that <laughs> golden notebook in which all the important writers are listed and we were just left to start where we were back in like 1989, we'd start where we were back in 1989. And I think that marks a difference between us and, um, yeah, well, again, the, the, well, bo- the book poses this. At one, one point in Sandy's um, spiral, he poses to himself the question, Does, would the last man on earth write a novel? <laughs> and I, I answered this question. Actually, I, I, I was asked about this. I was just interviewed by, uh, by Dana Spiota, whose new wonderful book is about to come out this week, and I urge you all to buy it. Um, but she'd asked me about that, and I told her that I thought the answer was yes if he were a novelist, or she. I think that if you're... If you're inclined to write novels, you're inclined to write novels. And it doesn't matter if you're writing them for gigantic crowds of applauding people and selling the rights to Scott Rudin for millions of dollars or whether you're simply um, writing for yourself or for an audience the size of this room. Uh, and, and again, I can't really speak for Jonathan, but I suspect that he and I have the same attitude. Our, what we do creatively is uh, intermingled with, with who we are in a lot of ways. And if someone were to say, here are ways of compromising your art that will guarantee you a certain stature, a certain prestige, a certain uh, level of wealth, will you do it? I. I would, of course, think about it because I think it's my responsibility. I have four kids, um, and one of them goes to an expensive college. But, but I, I also would probably, in the end, say no. I, I don't think I can quite do that. I mean, you know, if there's if there's another way, 
Um, well, don't you think that also the unwillingness shades into the incapacity so that you'd probably uh, brag of refusing uh, to protect the fact that you wouldn't really well, actually be capable well, of functioning well, maybe, maybe, you've, you've, maybe you've had the same, this same situation, but I've often said in moments, there are two things I say in moments of extreme frustration with my career, which is, <laughs> fuck this, I'm going to law school. Um, you know, and I, I said it just a couple weeks ago, actually, you know, but, and it's, that's a really empty threat, although I've, you know, I've looked into it. There's a great CUNY law school for, you know, social justice law, so I wouldn't have to worry about City it. City as law school, it's that's not, what you need no, to find. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 it's for real. Look it up. It's good. Um, that's, that's where I went before, but... <laughs> And the other, but the other thing I say is, God damn it, I am going to write a real pot boiler, not some sort of like literary novel, like wrapped up in the trappings of a pot boiler. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write it. I'm going to write just like one of those goddamn New Yorker stories where like Biff and Marie <laughs> discover that the, in the closet, that photo album is going to tell them some truth about their lives together that they never would have suspected. And in the end, you know, when, when Biff goes out to get the, the tartine, uh, <laughs> you know, Marie says it would never be the same. It would never be the same, or whatever. I mean, all right, that's a very cruel take on a New Yorker story, but not that far off the mark. Um, but when I say that, Minna, who I live with, always says to me, "You're going to fuck it up because you can't do something like that without subverting it." Weren't we trying to sell out when we wrote that book about the Mets? <laughs> I I I thought we put Bill Thomas in the broom closet and yeah. told him we'd let him out when he <laughs> gave us the contract. Yeah. So okay, one last question for Chris, and uh, and then we'll make him sign some books. If there's if there's Any if there's buyers? somebody who's, who wants to be the the, the finale. Hey there. Did they try and dissuade you and say, well, books about books or books about writers are difficult? Good question. To tell you the truth, I had several talks along the way, not so much about the publishing stuff, but about the writer stuff. My former agent, to whom I'd shown some of these pages when the book was very early on, I sold him, showed him maybe the first 150 pages. Uh, his, his first objection, and I don't feel bad characterizing this way, was like, oh, it's about a writer. Nobody wants to read books about writers. And I said, fuck you, or whatever I said to him. Um, he is my former agent, but that's not why I didn't fire him. He just <laughs> left the business. But, uh, but then my, my present agent read it, and he expressed some concern, you know, writing about writers. Can't you make him a photographer or something? I said, well, you know, it's really kind of, I mean, it is about storytelling. I, you know, it's not about picture taking. Um, and then when the book was acquired by Simon & Schuster, my editor, without putting any pressure on me, I have to say to his credit, did say, you know you're going to take shit about it being a book about a writer. Um, and this was all, I guess, before, uh, you know, Knausgaard broke big and Ben Lerner wrote 1001. And so that particular canard, I think, 1004, thank you. <laughs> that particular canard, I think, has been uh, dispelled. The publishing stuff is much more interesting. Um, 
There's a lot of satire in the book about contemporary publishing, as I think I alluded to slightly earlier. And I, my, my only sense of why nobody's really objected to it too much is because, A, it's really broad and exaggerated for the purposes of satire. So I think a lot of people can see in the business that I'm not really alluding to anything specific or particular. They feel the way people often do when they're sort of the oblique target of satire, like, oh, he's not talking about me, he's talking about that guy. And the, <laughs> They're all like Donald Trump, they look at their hands like, he's not talking about my hand, I got perfectly good hands. Um, and the other thing, too, is I think, I think, and this is very general, that people really appreciate work that satirizes the absurdities that tend to cohere around their vocations. You know, I mean, Los Angeles is famous for it with like these kind of self-referential Hollywood movies in which like the the weird horse trading and ins and outs that surround filmmaking become these critical hits. People people love that stuff. But you know, I I did mean it. I mean, I want to make I want to make certain that everybody knows that while I was exaggerating and while I was doing my best to, um, you know, disguise specific personalities to the extent that any specific personalities were being lampooned, everything I say about publishing and its really uh, overwhelming preoccupation with um, publishing schlock that looks as if it's going to do well for the bottom line, but doing their best to present it as if it's very high art is absolutely the way that commercial publishing is going. And I think it's, I think it's reprehensible in a lot of ways. They devote so much energy trying to convince us to buy books that they spent too much for, and so little energy trying to promote the careers or develop the careers of authors who after four or five or six books will have this significant backlist and significant body of work that they can that they can use. Um, but I think that that line of thought um, and this, the way that I was implicitly criticizing it in the book was not something that really occurred to the to the people who read it or who promoted it. And I have to say too, also, just to, to cover all my bases, when I say publishing, I'm not referring to individuals in publishing because I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of editors and publicists and others who actually really care about the books that they're that care about books generally. They read them, they think about them, they want good books to do well, they like the books they're publishing and they want them to do it. It's not just a simple question of like, hey, Duck Dynasty cookbook, how to lose 50 pounds in 20 days, and the fugitives, they're all kind of the same widgets. Like, that's not really what I've encountered. I just think that those people are the ones who are fighting, losing battles, and I've seen a lot of those people end up switching careers entirely or moving from a big house to a much smaller house or otherwise finding their ability to fight the good fight from within being really impaired by that bottom line mentality that publishing has embraced um, to the exclusion of anything more felicitous toward the art itself. Um. I think we should stop and let people meet you one-on-one and uh, scribble in their books. So thanks, Chris, and thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you.
Um, where, do you, where do you want this? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.